Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. The second reading is from Romans chapter 10. It's on page page 802 and we're starting at verse 5 and going through to verse 17. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by by the law. The man who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the deep that is, bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Okay, well, hi, everyone. Uh, it's a real privilege to be back here tonight. Uh, for those of you that I haven't met before, um, this is a church that I was, this service I was at for uh, two years, uh, six months ago, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been sad to be away, actually, and it's just been great just to be here, just even for the hour before the service and um, the time that we've had together, to see familiar faces and uh, just to catch up with people and to see, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just awesome to see how people are going. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be great to hang out after the service as well. So thanks for having me tonight. And it is just a real privilege to be with you again to share this. And 
especially on the topic of mission. Like, what a great topic to be preaching on. So please keep your Bibles open. Uh, we want to make sure that we listen to what God has to say on it and get his perspective. And uh, why don't we pray as we begin. Uh, Father, uh, we've sung songs tonight that have declared your glory and your greatness. Uh, we have heard uh, just the story of, uh, particularly of Stephen, who has given his life over to declaring your greatness uh, overseas. And just there are, there are so many people that are out doing that. Um, we pray that as we think about this topic of mission tonight, that you'd please speak your truth from your word into our hearts. And please affect us by what affects you. Please let us have the heart that you have for mission. And um, we pray that you would give us the courage to take action in line with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, mission, right? The, the church's uh, call to look outwards, to look at people around the world and to respond to the need that they've got. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about having a weekend like we've got to just focus on mission? Reflect for a moment. Just, just think what, what kind of feelings have been going through your mind as you've been, been watching the things on the screen. As you see that little Google Maps thing go from one country to another. Maybe a bit of curiosity. Go, oh, yeah, I'd like to go and travel to Peru. That'd be a kind of, or Ecuador. That'd be a cool place to go. Uh, maybe, maybe you're someone who, when mission comes up, you're just, you're completely chuffed. And this is your thing, okay? Um, you know, we've seen you know, some, of the, some of the members of the mission committee. Mick Fell, particularly keen about mission, right? Um, there's more to come, Mick, don't worry. Um, perhaps you're someone who's really fired up for mission and just thinking about the need of the people overseas. You, you look out and you see people that need clothing and shelter. But more than that, love and hope and friends. But more than that, they, they're people that are hurting people, other people, and being hurt, and they need uh, the justice of God to intervene. And that they're at odds with God themselves, and they, they actually need the reconciling work of Jesus to help them. Okay? Maybe, this, maybe this is you. Uh, maybe you look out, and you're not feeling so much chuffed and excited about mission, but you feel guilty. Okay, so this mission weekend comes up every, every year, and it's like a visit for the dentist for you. Okay? It just hurts. It's like, oh... I know all these people are out there. I know I should be doing something about it, but um, I don't have my act together. I don't want to do anything about that. And so it just, it's a, bit, a little bit painful and you sit there kind of wriggling in your seat a bit because it's not, not very a comfortable moment. Um, you know, there's a, there's a range of different feelings, but I reckon there's probably people here as well who are just straightforward, uncomfortable with mission. It might be some of the experiences you've had of people trying to tell you about being a Christian and you've just gone, that was just not called for. It might be that words like conversion or proselytization come up and you just go, oh man, like that's, that's just not what I'm on about. I don't like that kind of word. You might just cast your memory back to the history of Christian mission and remember stories about uh, the stolen generation and just think Christian mission, that's not why I go to church. In fact, that's not why I, come to, I came tonight. And so the whole idea of mission is just something that's a bit awkward and uncomfortable for you. And you know, there's, there's a range of different feelings and uh, what we're doing tonight as we look at the Word is I want us to bring those, those things you just thought about and those things you reflected and bring them to bear on God's Word or, let, or rather let God's Word bring its message to your heart about those feelings tonight. Because as we look at Psalm 96, and I'm, like, please keep that open, what you notice is that the psalmist who writes it really isn't awkward about mission. Okay, can you see that there in verse 1 as he starts? I'm going to read it out. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. 
sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. You get the the sense that he wants people to sing, don't you? Like he says it enough times. And he's so excited that he, he wants other people to be excited about it. He says, sing to the Lord a new song. Okay, old songs aren't going to cut it anymore. We need something new to express just how excited I am about this message. There's a freshness to what he's trying to say. He says, people need to know this. You might have friends that kind of just, you know, and when you're in their company, they just inappropriately laugh in the middle of a movie or something like that, and it's a little bit embarrassing. You go, oh, okay, you know, you know the people I'm talking about. You know who you, know who you are, okay? Um, is this what the psalmist is like? Is he one of those people who just sort of laughs in the middle of a movie or just laughs at an inappropriate joke and everyone's like, oh, that was so uncalled for, okay? Is that the kind of person we have here? Have a look at the direction that he, that he sings this praise to. Uh, verse uh, 1, let me have a look, Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Where's he directing it to? Sing to the Lord all the earth. Have a look at verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Or look down to verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Friends, the psalmist here, mission is close to his heart. Like, when I say the psalmist, I mean probably King David, but we don't know, so I'll just call him the psalmist. Mission is close to his heart. He has particular excitement for something about God directed towards the peoples of the world. And you've got to ask yourself the question, okay, why is this guy so excited? And why is he so not awkward about the things that we're awkward about? Like, where does he get that kind of courage from and enthusiasm? Uh, Does he not share our reservations for mission? Does he not know the way that people can act inappropriately and destroy cultures by the way that that people did in, you know, in the islands and uh, in northern Australia? Maybe he's one of those embarrassing friends of ours who just sort of speaks out and puts his foot in it every time and embarrasses everyone and clears the room. Is he that kind of person? No, well, have a look at verse 4, and this is key. This is key for understanding the motivation for mission, and not just the motivation for the psalmist, but the motivation that represents God's people from the Old Testament till now. Verse 4, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. See, as the the psalmist sings and he calls people to sing, there's a real logic to it. It makes sense. It's not just haphazard. Why does he do it? Because God is great. Because God deserves it. Because he is worthy of praise. It's really, it's, it's kind of natural. And natural in a way that we're familiar with, I think in other areas of life. Uh, Who here uh, knows someone who's tried to press upon them the importance of an Apple product? Right? An iPod, an iPad, a MacBook. Okay, there's people out there. I know know some of you do that. Some of you have done it to me. You've tried to convert me. You've tried to proselytize me to the way of Apple. You've pulled out the MacBook out of its cover and felt its cool touch, its contoured edges, and you've gone, oh, yes. Um, A time of productivity has arrived for me. I too can be connected with other people. You've started, you've uh, you've pulled that phone out and you've held it to your face and it's meant a new thing for you. You've sung a new new song to to Apple and the people that produce that product. You love it. And and what you do is you go out and you you sing the praises to everyone, regardless of whether or not they want to hear you. 
regardless of whether or not they already own one of the products, you just constantly declare it. I know, I know because I'm, I'm one of them. I got an iPhone a little while ago, and early this year, I, I, I dropped it on the ground and smashed the front of it, so there's a big crack on the screen. And there's, you know, you can't walk around at uni and try and show university students that you're responsible by having a cracked screen. And so I went to Apple to do something about it and said, look, I need to get a screen. I thought it was going to cost a few hundred dollars. And they said to me, oh, this is your first time with us, so we're going to give you a replacement for free. And I went away with a big smile on my face, and I sang a new song to Apple that day. And for a week to go, I could not stop singing the praises of Apple. And why? It, was, it, just, it just naturally rolled off my tongue. If this company is so good with their products and so good in serving me with it, giving me a new one when they didn't, they, didn't, like they weren't responsible for me dropping the phone, why, like what, what a great company. Everyone needs to know about this. It's, it's natural. I told everybody about it. And a similar thing is going on for the psalmist. He's got a picture of the greatness of God. And naturally, praises roll off his tongue. So that anyone who is around who he says, sing to the Lord. He is great. He is worthy of all praise. Mission is close to his heart. And here's the point. Here's the point. If we want to get a picture of what mission is about and sort of understand and have the right sort of biblical mandate for mission, what we need to do is do what the psalmist has done. We need to look up, see the glory of God before we look out. We need to look up and then we look out so that we might see the natural response of what mission is. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look up firstly and I'm going to sort of look at a few different points that describes the glory of God. And then we're going to look out and see what that might look like as we look at people around us, okay? So we're going to look up. And the first thing that we see in verse 4 is that God challenges our gods. Okay? Verse 4. Let me read verse 4. For great is the Lord and most worthy and praised. That's why we sing to him. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Uh, idols and other gods. This is back in the day when the psalmist is writing this, you know, I don't know how many years, 3,000 years ago he's writing this psalm. Idols and gods are a pretty serious thing back then. Okay? Ashtoreths and Baals were these things that people made very ornate temples and sanctuaries for. Bigger than the, the temple that Israel had, more ornate than that, people would give a lot of good stuff for it and they would make sacrifices there regularly. Okay, they'd get their fertility goddesses. They thought, if I sacrifice to this goddess, she will bring rain and harvest and we'll have lots of food. If we don't do that, we won't get food and we'll go hungry. And so their life, they, they, they sacrificed like their life depended upon it. In fact, what they did sometimes is they sacrificed their children to these gods. So this is a pretty serious thing. People took it very seriously back in that day. Uh, but despite their popularity, what does the psalmist say? Psalmist says that the Lord is to be feared above all gods. Okay? Looking around, seeing everyone sacrifice to other gods, this Lord is to be feared above them. And verse 5 give the, gives the reasons. Can you see that there, verse 5? All the gods of the nations are idols. Literally, all the gods of the nations are nothings. They're just nothings. They're whispers. They're mists. They just disappear. Uh, 
Isaiah, the prophet, gives a similar story. If you uh, have read Isaiah, he talks about just the stupidity of some of the way that these people worship idols. He says they're not actually anything. You go and you, you get a piece of wood, you chop it in half, you use half the wood to go and cook your food with it, you light a fire and cook your food, and then you take the other half of the block of wood and you worship it. He says it's ridiculous, it's futile, it's stupid. You've taken a nothing and you've started worshipping it. Okay, not, that, not that wood is bad, wood isn't, a, wood isn't a bad thing, it just it can't do anything for you. It doesn't do stuff, it doesn't actually bring the rain. Okay? And what he says is credit where credit's due, guys. Let's give credit where credit's due. The Lord, unlike your gods, he made the heavens. Okay? They would worship the fertility goddess. They'd worship the sun and the moon and the stars. The sun because it brought light and warmth. And what what the psalmist says is, yeah, but God made the sun. Credit where credit's due. Now, we're not so silly to worship a fertility goddess. We know the way that science works. We know the seasons. We know that the reality of drought and rain and that kind of stuff. But we do sacrifice to other gods, don't we? And just think about the things that you sacrifice things to. We sacrifice to our bodies. We make sacrifices for our appearances, our reputations, for real estate. All, all good things, but we sacrifice to them. We give so much to them. We worship them. Not worthy of worship, yet we worship them. We sacrifice our lives to them. And the psalmist pushes us to see God as the one who is actually worthy of worship. He is the source of the things you are sacrificing to. He gave you your body. He gave you your appearances. And he gives real estate. He made the real estate you're trying to purchase. Why would you worship created things instead of the creator, the psalmist asks. And so the first thing is that God demolishes our gods and tells us to worship the one who can actually do stuff. Don't worship the nothing. Worship God. That's the first point, okay? The second one comes in verse 6. God meets our desires. So let's, let's keep looking up and see this picture that, God, that, that the psalmist has of God. Verse 6. Let me read it out. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. And so as the psalmist looks up and sees this picture of God, he sees something and just starts to... Just, putting words out there splendor majesty strength glory or maybe a better word is, is actually beauty he just looks up there and so he's putting words out there other words he could have used right he could have said brilliant uh, splendorous gorgeous magnificent as he looks up and sees this picture of god uh, he finds uh, words that describe god but actually he doesn't just describe him like i could say Mick Fell is strong. And he is, he's a strong guy. Like Mick's got, he's got, he plays rugby, you know, he's, he's a guy that can put a tackle or two on people. Um, but you'd say that God is stronger than Mick. And that's not to discredit Mick at all, it's just that God's stronger than him, right? Um, you might even say that God is strongest compared to all the rugby players and co- compared to every person, actually. But the, the psalmist doesn't say that God is strongest. Or that God is strong even. What does he say? Have a look at the way he puts it. He says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. What's he trying to do here? Well, he, I think he, he kind of steps it up a little bit. 
He takes that abstract concept of splendor and majesty and he personifies it. Like, almost like that splendor is a person that comes and serves in the temple, in the sanctuary. So he says that splendor is before him and strength is in his sanctuary. And so we don't say, we don't say that God is stronger than Mick or stronger than anyone. We say that strength itself serves God. And by saying that, what do we say? We say, you can't even make a comparison between God and other things. The very concept of strength serves God. Majesty and splendor, things that take our breath away, serve before him. We all long for strength and power. We, we want control. We want to feel security. In, in our worst moments, we also just want to pose a threat in front of, front of people. God says power itself is in his temple. And beauty, we all long for beauty. We want to be beautiful. We want to be the object of someone's gaze. We want to be prized as special. When we see something beautiful, we want to own it and possess it. We want a beautiful car. We want beautiful artwork to sort of ordain our houses and our, and our dwelling places. We want a beautiful girlfriend or a boyfriend. We want beautiful children. And what the psalmist is saying is that if, I, if you long for these things, if you long for beauty and strength and splendor and brilliance, then just look up. Take a, take a look at the picture of God, the incomparable picture of God who made all things, in whom is power and strength. The one who's not just the loveliest person, the one who is love. That is the God that we worship. That's the God that we, that we, that we, that we love and we want to serve. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. With this picture that he's painted, you can see the words from verse 7 to 9 just roll off his lips. Can you see them? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to him. Accredit him with glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Worship him. He just rolls off his lips. He goes to the nations and he says, give him the praise he deserves. Can you see what he does? He starts by looking to worship God himself. He then proclaims the greatness of God to the nations so that the nations praise God. Worship mission starts with worship. It consists of worship and it results in worship. This is the God that we serve. Worship him. Worship him for mission so that people might worship him might be asking yourself, hold on a second, hold on a second. Are you telling me that this God we're talking about, okay, that this, this God that you're talking about deserves the worship of all the people of the world? Yes. That's what we're saying. Look up and see that he is worthy of the world's worship. He doesn't just suggest that people might misapply mission and cause great damage to God's reputation, the psalmist, that is. The psalmist doesn't deny that it's going to be awkward at times, but neither of these prevent him from doing it. Yeah, that awkward conversation that you might have to have with someone to tell them that God is worthy of worship, the way that that sounds, is it awkward? Yeah. But God is worthy of a little bit of awkwardness. That's what the psalmist is trying to say. If it's, 
Is your picture of God big enough to include the fact that he might be worthy of the world's worship? In fact, I suspect the psalm's gaze is so strongly planted in the picture of God's grace that any awkwardness at all just kind of washes over him. He's kind of just unaware of it. He becomes one of those embarrassing friends that we've got simply because the picture that he has of God is so big. Listen to this quote by John Piper. Uh, He says, Most people know that the greatest experiences of joy in this life, the ones that come closest to being the picture of perfect joy in heaven, are not the experiences of self-affirmation, but of self-forgetfulness in the presence of something majestic. Let me read that one more time. Most people know that the greatest experiences of joy in this life, the ones that come closest to being the picture of perfect joy in heaven, are not the experiences of self-affirmation. Self-affirmation, that thing we love coming to church for because it makes us feel good. The reason we go to Bible study or connect group is because we love people encouraging us. He says, no, that's not the the moment of greatest joy. The greatest joy comes when we forget ourselves in the presence of something majestic. Have you ever been to Echo Point? Or to Wentworth Falls, and just, you know, your eyes widen as you see this picture of God's creation. Your, your jaw opens involuntarily as you see this world. I presume at that moment you're not thinking about how great you are at that time. You are captured by this vision of splendor that is before you. And I suspect that the psalmist has got, the psalmist has got this perspective. Have you got this perspective? Have you read the scriptures and have your eyes been opened Is your mouth ajar at the greatness of God? One more picture of awesomeness. The third thing. The first one is that God renders our gods useless. The second one is that God meets our needs. The third one is that God comforts our souls. And you can see it there in verse 10. Let me read verse 10. Say, among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Uh, this verse, I think, really does form the climax of the psalm. If you, if you look at the poetry, there's this kind of pattern that's going on with triplets and couplets and that kind of thing, and there's an A and then a B and then an A, and then this thing comes along, and it's this disjunction that makes you just take notice. The Lord reigns. And it kind of forms the place that God, in his awesomeness, actually engages with the world we live in. Okay? The fact that the Lord reigns, that he is in control affects the world that we live in, the world in which we, see, we witness the earth subject to earthquakes, to tsunamis and nuclear radiation and global warming and all these things that seem to threaten the, the very created order that we live in. Uh, we fear sometimes. There's, there's, there's huge parts of our community that fear the nature of our, the, the, the lack of control that our world seems to be in, that it seems to be spiralling right out of control. And what the psalmist says is, no, 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 the Lord reigns. The Lord is actually in control. And in verse 10, he says, the world is actually firmly established. It cannot be moved. It isn't spiraling out of control. God made the world. One day he will redeem the world. The whole world is in his hands. And there's no need to have have that kind of fear because the Lord reigns. In a world which is filled with injustice, Uh, The horrible starvation of millions in Somalia. Uh, We've seen all this on the news. The pointless shooting of Norway, uh, the shooting of people in Norway. 
Uh, leadership quarrels, incompetency in leadership, corruption in leadership, uh, tyranny of leadership that just render entire people groups uh, subject to the worst forms of evil and corruption and disorder. Not to mention just the evil that is evident everywhere in our lives as well in the hearts of people that just, just damage relationships around us and causes us such grief in our own families and friendship groups. The psalmist says, take comfort, the Lord reigns. And this injustice will not go on forever. Verse 10, he says, he will judge the peoples with equity. He will judge the people fairly. No evil will be left unpaid for. And, and notice God's judgment, which is, is here as elsewhere, spoken in such positive ways. Like we often have this very negative, it's like, oh, talking about God's judgment is a very sensitive issue. The Bible's very rarely anxious about talking about judgment. It wants it. And you can see here the way that the whole creation is satisfied by it. Have a look at verses 11 to 13, just to the end. He says, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the seas resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy and they will sing before the Lord because he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. The creation is satisfied. Oh, what a relief. And so I've got to ask the question, isn't this the God you want to worship? The God who created all things and one day will wrap everything up. The God who in between those two events is the beauty and strength of the world. Is this not the, the, the God that we want to worship and the, and the God that is worthy of the world's worship? As we look up, is that not the picture that you have for yourself? And as we begin to look out this weekend, as we think about wishing, is this not the God that people need to know about? Is this not like the message of the Apple person who just, that, who just naturally is so caught up by the Apple product that he wants to tell everyone about it? Are we not as Christians caught up with this image of God that people just so naturally need this God that we want to tell them about that? Um, a couple of hundred years ago, uh, the um, English Reformation produced a document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, it's a series of questions and answers that really just were, were made to teach people in the congregation about the truths about God. And uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is one that was um, very famous in the Church of Scotland and the Presbyterian Church. And it opens with probably the most famous lines, and I know that some of you could recite it because you know it. It asks the question... And then answers it. It says, what is the chief end of man? Okay, what, is the, what is the thing that is the goal of humanity? What is it that humanity was made for? Okay, not just men, obviously, just humans, because it was written 400 years ago. What were they made for? And it answers the question, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what we were made for. That is the purpose of all of the people in this world, to enjoy God and glorify him forever. And so as we look out, and as we see the people in our workplaces, in our, in our homes, as we look further abroad to all of Sydney, as we look further abroad to Australia and the world, what is the need of the people around us? Surely it is to grasp the picture that we see when we look up, the glory and majesty of God, to understand their full humanity. As we look out, it's good to have these, it's, it's good to have these mission weekends. 
because we're so often caught up in our own lives and the things we've got to do every day. And I'm not sure if it's necessarily just a bad thing, but we just do this as people. We just suffer this sense of myopia as we just, our, our sight is just shortened by the things that we've got to do every day. And we forget the fact that we've got a whole world out there that the things that are going on. Newspapers don't tell us about these kinds of things. So often just trying to sell more newspapers and telling us things that we want to know about, not telling us the things that perhaps represent the world more real, more uh, really. I'm not sure if what the word is there. Realistically, thank you. That's a great word. Okay. But let me, let me give you some statistics to sort of paint a picture. Um, statistics that were brought out by a Christian agency a little while ago. In fact, to start with, there was some statistics I got from Wikipedia. I'm not sure how accurate that would be, but... It's a pretty general picture that Australia is, if you look at a map of the world, you'd have countries that are represented as Christian countries. Australia is one of the best case scenarios. You know, uh, 50% of the people in Australia are Christians. And as you look at the map of the world, the colour is bright red in Australia and it becomes a soft pink in a lot of the rest of the world. And it's just across the middle of the map, you know, through the Middle East, just straight across through India, it's just dead white. You've got to ask yourself the question, if it's the best case in Australia and we know that half the people we meet aren't Christian, then how much worse must it be in these other countries? Another website that I looked at, and look, all of this is browsable on, on Google. It took me minutes to find this stuff. I found um, some statistics that a Christian agency that updates their website monthly with these details just said that most of the people in the world most of the people groups, that is, the sociolinguistic groups, have less than two percent of Bible, have less than two percent Bible-believing Christians in that in that country. Okay. Um, it also said that last year, in 2010, there were 732 people groups listed as unreached people groups. That is, having no evangelical Christians or churches, no access to evangelical print, audio, or human resources equates to about 33 million people who don't have access to the gospel of Christ. They don't have access to the truth, let alone 2% of people, which is most of the world, to talk to in their country. And as we look out tonight, uh, as we have this mission weekend, I want to challenge you with the question of global mission. It's actually the question that Paul asks in that second reading that we had tonight, and uh, Maren read it out before as well in the prayers, from Romans 10. Can I get you to flick over to Romans 10 for a moment? That's page 802. I looked it up before. 802. You looked it up before as well because we had a Bible reading on it. Let me just read from Romans 10 verse 12. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him because... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's so easy. They just need to call on the name of the Lord. But he asks the questions, verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The question we want to ask tonight is who's going to go and tell them? Who's going to do it? Now picture yourself, okay, on your day off. Maybe this is yesterday for you, the beautiful Sydney weather, okay? Canberra at the moment, it's minus eight at night time, okay? You're in Sydney though. It's beautiful. 
It's a sunny day. It's your day off. You're at a coffee shop, a cafe. You're enjoying a lovely, freshly brewed coffee, sipping it gently. It's still warm, okay? You've got a bagel in your other hand or a, a you know, freshly cooked Danish. It's just, the world couldn't be better, okay? It's lovely. You're sitting there enjoying it. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, you stare across the road. A child wanders onto, into, onto the road into oncoming traffic. What do you do? What is your instinct? You fling the bagel, you drop the coffee, and you rush onto the road. Everyone in this room would do that. I'm, I, I doubt the fact that there's anyone in this room who would not instinctively rush onto the road to help the child. And why? It's, it's the basic sense of compassion we have, that the child is helpless and needs help, and you address that need straight away. There's no doubt, right? Now, I look across the room, and I ask, I ask, I ask the, I, what, I, what I see in this room, uh, as we ask the question, who's going to go and tell the nations? I look across the room, and I see who in people who are in world terms the most biblically literate. Sydney Christians are amongst the world's most biblically literate, the most well-resourced here in Kirribilli, the most able. Many of you have very high positions in professional workplaces. You, the most well-resourced, the most able, most well-educated, the most mobile part of God's church right here. People in this room, people in the congregations at Church by the Bridge are full of these most people most able people. And so as, as you see the child walking across the road into oncoming traffic and you look around, who is the most able person in the room to help the child? Or the, the question that really is a bit more direct, who's going to go and preach the word to the nations? Who's able to do it? There are people out there who need to know that Jesus is their Lord, who want to know it deep down, but they don't know it. Unreached people groups everywhere. Who's going to go? And I want to ask yourself, will you commit yourself to a, to a picture of global mission? Will you even consider being someone who will be sent to go to tell them? Could that be you? Could, are, you are you able to do that? You might say, well, hold on, I've actually got responsibilities here. I've got a mortgage. You know what? I've, I've met people who've had, who've had a mortgage and they sold their house and went on mission. So I've got, I've got a family. People have taken their mission with their family with them. I've got a career. People have forsaken their career and gone to do it. It has been done before. I want to ask yourself, could you be that person? Would you make the first steps? You don't have to make the decision now. Would you make the first steps in investigating that and asking someone if I'm the right person to go? Not everyone's going to be the right person to go. Okay, but could you be? Maybe you should start asking yourself that question. Or if you're not going to be sent, will you be the person that seeks to send someone? Maybe Church by the Bridge needs to be the church who are looking around going, who are we going to send? You might be the person at the cafe sitting in the wheelchair going, oh, there's a child trying to cross the road. Someone go and help them. Are you that person? Who, who is going to be able to go and tell them? Maybe we need to grab Mick and send him off to Indonesia. I'm serious. Mick's got a heart for Indonesia. I've spoken to him about it before. Maybe he's someone who needs to be sent by you guys to go and do that. It's not out of the question. He could be doing it next year. Why don't we do that? You could be sent. 
you can send? Do you have a vision to spend for mission? Is that a problem? Is, is, it, a, is it a problem? For, like, uh, this, is, this is also a, a fairly cashed up part of the world. Could you not sacrifice ridiculous amounts of money to help people? Could you not spend time bowing before the Lord and praying to the Lord of the harvest for him to raise up people to do this kind of thing? Begging God because there's no one around who can help that, that child running in front of traffic. There are millions of people. Look out and see that there are people around the world who need to know their maker. And please, would you catch a vision for global mission this weekend? Remember, as you ask these questions, verse 4 that the psalmist has, who just fumbles these words out there, sing praises to the Lord. Remember the reason he does it? Verse 4 of Psalm 96. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. It's a huge sacrifice to go overseas to do this kind of thing. But you know what? The psalmist knows that God is worth it. He deserves it. Let's pray as we um, commit ourselves to this. And let's, maybe as, I, as we pray this prayer, maybe you want to sort of voice these words on your lips, um, even for the first time, and take the daring step of thinking through mission for yourself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, there's so much that goes on in life. And um, there's so, we, we do often, um, just through the nature of life, get caught up in our own things and we forget to think about uh, things that are outside our own lives. We get caught up in deadlines at work and needs of our families and there's all these important things that we do. But sometimes we forget the bigness of the picture of you that we have in the scriptures. We forget the needs of the people around us. And so we ask you that you please help us to look up and see your glory, see the need that people have of you And as we look out, see that there's only one thing that we can say to people, that the Lord is great and worthy of praise, even the praise of the nations. Please help us to respond to that in a way that's almost natural, but so unnatural in the way that the the world thinks about it. Um, Give us courage, Lord, to respond to your mission in the way that you would have us do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.